Hi, it is Paul Durham. Welcome to Telling Lies of Children. Uh, it is snowing a lot out there as I record this. Um, it happens a lot in New Hampshire this time of year, but uh, this is a lot of snow sitting here in the coop, looking out the window at like two feet of snow coming down and hoping that uh, a tree's not going to fall uh, on my head. I don't think it will. Um, what's new? What's coming up? February 28th. Uh, the paperback version of Luck Ugly's Rise of the Ragged Clover will be out everywhere in stores. The hardcover is already out there, but the paperback is on the way. So go and get it now if you haven't already. Uh, also, uh, as of actually starting now, uh, beginning now and over the next two weeks uh, on Amazon, you can get the ebook version of the Luck Uglies for just $1.99. So if you haven't picked up the series yet and you like ebooks, there's a great way to do it. Uh, my guest on the podcast today is Mackenzie Lee. I'm ca uh, continuing my series of uh, live on location interviews in Boston. And uh, Mackenzie and I, uh, Mackenzie was nice enough to meet me at a uh, at a cool little uh, cafe. Um, it was uh, definitely a little bit on the noisy side, so I apologize in advance for that. Uh, but on on the bright side, you get the, it'll be the first, I guess, uh, soundtrack to a uh, to a, a one of my shows. Um, I think we had everything, everyone from Tom Jones to Pink uh, to uh, I don't know, uh, uh, serenading us in the background. So there's a there's a musical accompaniment. Uh, to today's episode. Uh, Mackenzie's a YA novelist, um, uh, writes some really great stuff. Uh, her debut novel was called This Monstrous Thing, uh, and we talk a bit about that, as well as her next uh, novel will be out this spring. It's called The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. And uh, like I said, we had a great uh, great conversation. Mackenzie was a lot of fun to talk with, um, and I think that you will enjoy the podcast as much as I enjoyed chatting with Mackenzie. So uh, pick it up uh, after the intro with me and Mackenzie Lee. Shh. Are the kids gone? Good. It's time for Telling Lies to Children with me, your host, Paul Durham. This is a first-of-its-kind podcast, one hosted by a children's author, that's me again, but intended for adults who live and breathe children's literature. That's you. Whether you're a librarian, a media specialist, a teacher, or a parent, we all work with children every day. But sometimes it's nice to talk like adults with adults who share our love of children's books and publishing. I'll be chatting with editors at the world's biggest publishing houses, literary agents, award-winning authors, booksellers, librarians, and even young readers. Join me and my guests as we give you a candid, behind-the-scenes look at children's publishing, the business of telling lies to children. But only the best kinds of lies, of course. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. I have to haul in like microphones. Yeah, that's what I was kind of imagining was you'd have some sort of little portable. So what's okay? Okay, so, so I've done that before, where I've uh -huh. actually brought in like the microphones and all that stuff, and then I have my iPad in the in just as like backup. And I went to edit everything, and I was like, "Yeah, the iPad sounds just as good as all the microphones, and it's uh, a hell of a lot easier so, just to, yeah, just to bring the iPad in." It's 
especially when you come somewhere similar with ambiance like this, right? Yeah. And, and I think apparently we're in the children's section. I don't know if you know this, but mm-hmm. oh, there's yeah. like kids books and there's a truck a if you want to play with it. Yeah. If I get bored in the middle of this, yeah, that's where I'm going. Yeah, that's where you're going over there. So, so, I'll, so I'll know what happens if the truck comes yeah, over. Exactly. I, I could have stepped up my interview. Game. <laughs> <laughs> but we got news, and I, I also realized that there's a. I'm not going to put you to the test, but there's like a wall here that you can like make sentences with these magnets. There aren't a lot of words though. <laughs> now there's really Seems like not. it's very limited magnetic yeah, poetry. Yeah. Yeah, that would take some more yeah. to, to do that. I'm reading, I was listening to an audiobook on the way over here that's called Lost City of the Monkey God, which is a nonfiction book about okay. archaeologists discovering this lost city in South America. So I feel like Monkey Boy Moon is sort of very um, appropriate to what I was yeah, listening to I totally before I came here. Do you, you listen to a lot of, you do a lot of audiobooks? Or do you, I have been lately. I do it every once in a while to sort of like shake up my, my reading, um, I don't know, my reading schedule, my reading um, habits. Yeah. Um, I find myself mostly doing it when I get kind of tired of books. Like, I go through phases where I read very intensely, and then I get sort of fatigued after that. And so audiobooks kind of help break that fatigue, so it's yeah. just a different way to read. And I can do it while I commute, which is, which is great. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, I, you know, I, I just discovered podcasts like two years ago, because I'm like a dinosaur. And, and, um, but, now but now I really like them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Podcasts are makes fantastic. A, yeah, it makes, a big, it makes a, big, like a big difference as far as like when I'm doing dishes or other tedious tasks. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I listen to podcasts or audiobooks a lot, too. I, I like to watercolor, and so I'll do that when I do that, or um, I bake a lot. And so when I bake, it's nice to have something on in the background yeah. um, that's neither music nor television. It's like a nice kind of middle ground between them. So. Yeah. I tried listening to them when I was writing novels, and that doesn't work so well. No, not so much. <laughs> it definitely, definitely slows down the process. I can do them at work sometimes when I'm doing sort of like like mindless stuff at work. I do, like I design like like newsletters and things that go out, and podcasts are really nice to have on in the background for yeah. that, too. So when you're sort of like formatting text. <laughs> right, right. So I have to tell you, Mackenzie, you've actually made an appearance on my podcast, whether you know it. Or have I? Well, only, sort of, your, your name's meant. So I would, in spirit. I would, in spirit. Well, no, in, in, in name. Um, I was interviewing um, Kathy Mercier. Oh. Uh, over at uh, over at Simmons. I love Kathy. Yeah, and um, so we and so we were. I mentioned that I was going to be connecting with you, and she was like, "Yeah, it's such a great story." And oh. so, yeah. So she was uh, she was she was great to talk to. She's a she's an incredibly intelligent woman. Yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like every time I'm in her presence, I just like learn things and absorb things. Right. Right. I was a, a teaching assistant for her um, when I was doing my my graduate degree, mm-hmm. and that was yeah. Just a, it's one of those things where I'm like, I will be teaching like. And then I ended up, it's like, this is like a totally, a totally other class where I am learning things from you and learning things from the students. And, yeah. and, and so, it was a great experience. Yeah. And, so, and you were sort of like the, um, like the dream MFA success story, Yeah. I had, right? so, yeah. So you have to, so you have to share that, <laughs> right? Just so you can piss everybody else off. Yeah, I did. Nice. It, it yeah. worked out really well for me that, um, I did my MFA at Simmons, um, in writing for children and young adults. And this, I think it was the first summer into the program, I signed with an agent, um, on a manuscript I'd written sort of like before. Um, coming into the program, and then that didn't sell. It was on submission for my whole second year of grad school. And while I was while that was on submission, um, I wrote a thesis for Simmons, um, and it was a novel. And I sent it to my agent, and she liked it. And about um, I think it was like two weeks after I graduated, my my novel sold to to Harper Collins. And yeah, it's I really can't complain at all. <laughs> Worked out really well. Was that part of your master plan? You had that it was, out? yes, yeah. actually, my, my five year plan. Yeah. Five. So, so, so when someone that happened, how did that? Is are you? I mean, everyone's story is different, but was that sort of like a lifelong dream, something you always sort of aspired to, or did you fall yes, into and, it? Yes or, and no, or? sort of both. Actually, yeah. I remember when I was a young person, I I used to write a lot, and I um I wrote um 
like my my first novel when I was ten years old or something in my like pink sparkly notebook that mm. I still okay I still have it occasionally revisit just to be like young Mackenzie. You foolish dreamer. <laughs> I don't know. It might be interested. Yeah. Um, ooh, I'm moving your your table. That's okay. Um, so I, I liked it when I was younger. I wrote a lot of terrible poetry when I was in high school, like a lot of people do. Um, but I kind of got distracted from writing. I don't know. Um, I look back and I can't totally remember why. I stopped reading, too, after I was about 14 years old and all the reading I had to do was for high school. And I, I didn't enjoy classic literature. And I remember even as a kid, like, people being like, you need to read Secret Garden and you need to read Anne of Green Gables. And I was like, but I would rather read Star Wars novelizations. And, like, that's the kind of books that I really enjoyed. So when I felt like I had to start reading adult books and these classic books, I stopped reading because it wasn't enjoyable to me anymore and then felt like I wasn't a reader because I wasn't reading the books I was being told readers enjoy reading. Nice. Um, and then when I was when I was in my, my undergrad program in my 20s, I my early 20s, um, I went to England and did a study abroad there and worked for a year with a social historian over there doing research for a thesis about um, women's experiences during the Wars of the Roses and had sort of this like confluence of events that all um, brought me back to fiction, which was part of it was I was traveling a lot and so I was on airplanes and buses and trains a lot and I was like, what do people do for fun on these things? And I was like, why are there all these these bookstores in, in these travel places? So I ended up reading again um, for the first time, like reading for pleasure for the first time in years. Um, I had this historian when I was working on this paper with her who kept saying to me that my papers read like novels. And she was like, you can't say that Richard III was really angry about this and we can't write dialogue for Henry V. And I was like, but that's what I want to be doing. Um, and then there was an author, a, a mystery, a British mystery novelist, um, who ended up doing a, was doing a residency at the school when I was there, and I sort of befriended her, and she just very much encouraged me to, to write in a way that I, I hadn't since I was a young person. And um, so I wrote a lot that year, both on my thesis and then also this like um, fiction I was working on with her, and then came back to the States and finished my history degree and jumped into an MFA. Yeah. Right. Isn't, isn't it funny, you know, I was, when I was, uh, like, taking AP English and that stuff in high school, I didn't like reading either, because I didn't... And, it was I awful. Did, yeah, I didn't like classics. Torture. Yeah. I mean, now, I think I would appreciate them now if I went back and reread, and I have reread some of them, but at the time, it's like, I mean, you know, I'm 15 years old, 16 years old, you know, I can't appreciate The Great Gatsby, and I can't appreciate, you know, and yeah. like, Hemingway, and all that kind of stuff, it's just like, I don't know, it, did, it didn't do it for me then. Well, I think the way we, the way we read changes, um, and the way that, um... We, we process literature and the way we format our books and tell our stories has changed to the point that um, it can be really hard to relate to those classic books in terms of story, in terms of structure, and sure, like, they're classics because they have these sort of timeless themes that extend forever, but they just feel impenetrable sometimes. And I have, I've, I'm a bookseller, and I have a lot of parents, and it's actually a lot of grandparents that come in and say, like, I have an eight-year-old, so I want to get her The Secret Garden, because that was a book I loved, and I feel like I'm hating on The Secret Garden a lot, which is not true, it's a lovely book. But, but it's different um, than what, yeah. But I just always want to say, like, this is, like, that's great, I'm glad that you want to share this with your, your grandchild. But she's reading differently than you were reading when you were eight years old because she has different different books and different kinds of stories available to her. So it might not be something that's necessarily going to resonate with her um, in the way you want it to. I'm always like, I feel like I'm a bad influence because I do sometimes try and warn people away from like giving kids classics because I was that kid that had all these classics voiced upon them and felt like I was a bad reader because I couldn't enjoy these. So... But it's one of those things where the important thing is, is getting kids reading, right? And getting, getting kids getting reading them what interested. They, and getting kids yeah. reading what they like. Like if yeah. you're a kid who loves classics like go for it that's awesome if you're a kid who loves Star Wars novelizations like we need to make sure we are rewarding that in sort of equal measure as 
as reading the classics. Well, because they can find the classics. Right, yeah. Right? You'll, you'll be forced yeah. to read them yeah. in high school. Yeah, whether no you rush. Kids, whether you like it or not, yeah. you're going to get there. Yeah, but like, so my, my first book is based on Frankenstein, and it's largely about Frankenstein, and that was the book I was supposed to read in high school and didn't because I was... I had such a hard time reading, and it was like our summer reading, and I remember um, like AOL instant messaging my best friend at the time and being like, hey, we have this list of three books, and we have to pick one. Which one did you pick? I haven't done it yet. Which should I read? And she said, don't read Frankenstein. It's so yeah. stupid. You'll hate it. And so I didn't read it and sort of carried these like incorrect assumptions about it for a long time and then ended up seeing like a, a stage play of it. And I'm a big theater person. Like theater something that's always like very, um, I'm very connected to in a way that I'm not always to other forms of art. Um, and so I saw it on stage, which sort of I was like, this is what Frankenstein is. Um, and then ended up seeking out the book and was shocked by how much I, I liked it really as like, like a it, classic yeah. that I picked up on my own without having like a classroom experience with it or being forced to read it. But now I have a lot of people in my life who are always like, you love Frankenstein. I want to read Frankenstein because you love it. And I always sort of have to give the caveat. I'm like, it's okay if you don't love it. Like, it can be a difficult and impenetrable book. And you think it's a story about mad scientists and you open it up and it's like, what are we doing in the Arctic for the first 50 pages? I am confused. Right. Yeah. So. It's not, it's, well, especially because I think people are so influenced by, you know, the iconic Dr. Frankenstein. Sure. Yeah. That they, have, that they you know, the, the, the source material is... is entirely foreign oh yeah yeah, yeah. I mean Dracula is the same way uh-huh. right they're yeah. so different we've, yeah. come, we've come along and not necessarily positive way with right. how we depict like Frankenstein and Dracula in popular right. culture right exactly exactly and um, we should mention the name of your book This, this Monstrous yes, Thing yes my book is called <laughs> my first book is called This Monstrous Thing yep. please buy it in bulk yeah um, it's a, it's now it came out uh, last year right yes it came out so, September of 2015 and it will be out in paperback in May if you want to wait and pay slightly less slightly money less. don't do that get the hardcover hardcover is a nice Mackenzie can probably sign it at some local Definitely, bookstore and yeah. send it out for you and all that good stuff right? I have been there to haunt local bookstores so that's a good thing yes. we have, we have have to do that we have to hustle you do yeah 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 no one else is hustling for you you got to do it yourself nobody else is unless you unless you're very, unless you're very lucky but right um, exactly were you expecting that when you as part of the job when you um when you started out did you did you were you a bookseller at the time or did I was yeah I, okay. I started at when I was in grad school I started at the Harvard Coop yep. um, and then shifted over to Porter Square Books which is an independent bookstore in in Cambridge and just sort of fell in love with like the indie bookstore community um, and had some like other publishing jobs in the interim there and just never really clicked with them in a way I wanted to and um, publishing the the spirit this the, yeah, the series of publishing I was in ended up feeling kind of impersonal. Like, I wasn't doing the editorial work because I wanted to focus on my own editorial work. And so I felt like it took a lot of the sort of, like, love of books that you get in independent bookstores. Um, publishing didn't have that. It was, it was a business, and it's a commodity, and indie bookstores are like that, too. But there's sort of, like, publishing was missing that um, community and that, like, love for books that I found in indie bookstores. So I have come back to it and... Um, I'm working at uh, Trident Booksellers on Newbury Street now. Cool. Yeah. I've never, I've never, I've never been in Trident before. It's a fun venue. It's, yeah. So I'm the events coordinator there, which is like the dream events coordinator job because we have this. It's a full restaurant and a full like a bar yeah. to go with this bookstore. So it's like booze and books, which is great. Um, and what we was, have was this, it something before it was Trident? Um, like, has Trident been there forever? Yeah, it's been there for like 30 years. Oh, it's it been has. a while. Okay. Yeah. Um, they just added an upstairs, though, so there's, like, two floors, which is pretty new. Okay. Um, but we have this, like, lovely dining room, and so as an events coordinator, I can do, like, really great book events, but also, like, we're having a... We have trivia every week, and we're having, like, a YA trivia night tonight, which I'm really excited about. Um, and we're having, like, a murder mystery dinner next week, so it's fun to just plan these, like, 
kind of like outrageously quirky events that you wouldn't get to do in a, a normal bookstore and then bring your community in. That's a, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's great. Do they have, do they have a um, significant like YA and children's section? So we haven't in the past. Okay. And then during grad school, my a good friend of mine from grad school um, ended up uh, getting a job there as one of their, their managers. And she sort of took it upon herself to expand their children's and YA section. So their children in YA section has grown tremendously in the last couple of years because of her. Um, and then when I came in, I was similarly very interested in right. children's lit. And so we are in the process of expanding our YA programs. We have a lot of um, really, really exciting authors lined up at the store to speak this, this um, spring. We're doing the, the trivia night tonight, which is sort of our kickoff. We're doing like a block party in June. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we haven't been necessarily strong in that in the past, but we're definitely trying to, to be stronger and become more of like a YA community. And it seems, it seems very natural because our, our demographic is largely students. It's a very like, um, we're on Newbury Street, so there's lots of schools around us and lots of people, like lots of young people come to study and work and, um, that's sort of who's reading YA at this point. Right. I imagine like picture books are no greater, not quite as big. Yeah, not quite as much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, which but, is like a little disappointing when I was at the, the coop we had a really strong um, story time program mm-hmm. where we'd have like people would bring their kids and you do story time at, in the mornings and that was just like delightful for me it's just very fun to like I don't have children and so it's fun to to talk to your your audience I guess it's a, it's um, a, it's a, different, it's a different vibe yeah. it is yeah, yeah. Um, it's always like it always astounds me with YA that you deal like exclusively with adults you're talking to your agent your editor and marketing and things like that and then when you do events and the like actual teenagers show up, I'm like, "Who are you? Like, right. this is amazing, <laughs> you so, rare creature, you." I, I, exactly. So I was. I wanted to ask you about that. So I write middle grade. So when I when I go out and do school visits and events, I mean, it's populated by kids sure. for the most part. You know, I get like the fourth, fifth, sixth grader, or sometimes younger. Sometimes I'll get a seventh and eighth grader. But you know, for the most part, that's my group. Um, when you go out and you, when you go to schools and you do events. Um, how do you, I mean, how do you find those? What are those like? Like, like I can go and sort of be silly and goofy and like you know get the kids to do all kinds of like kind of crazy stuff. Um, and every now and then I'll go to like seventh or eighth graders and I can tell that they're like, yeah, who's this guy? Why? Why are you? You know, like they're happy. That it they're doesn't not, reach their yeah, eyes. Yeah, like they're happy they're not in math class. Yeah. But they, some of them have crossed over. Why? Some of them are still sort of sure. whatever. So when you like when you go do your like events, like how do you like how do you connect with them? Like what kind of things do you do at your at your Oh gosh! Um, I you thought these were going to be easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was not prepared for this. Um, I don't know. I just I sort of um, you talk, I, about, you talk about writing. Yeah, I talk I talk about a lot of things. I've talked to classes before that are. Um, that are reading Frankenstein, and so I talked to them. I once accidentally um, spoiled the ending of Frankenstein for an entire class of 11th graders because I thought they had finished it, but they hadn't. Whoops. Um, So that was great. (laughs) Um, So I've talked to classes that are reading Frankenstein before, and we've talked sort of critically about Frankenstein, which was was fantastic. I've talked to book clubs that have read the book. I've talked to bookstores full of people who have not read the book. I've Mm -hmm. talked to bookstores full of two people. Um, those. Everyone, everyone does those events <laughs> yeah. that nobody comes to. Yeah. Um, so it's it's sort of a, a wide range, and I I think my at least my book is sort of a my books in general are unique, I guess, in that they don't fit. You can't put them on like here's your YA contemporary panel, here's your dystopian panel, and so I often get sort of like in the miscellaneous panels, which is which is really interesting because I get to talk to a lot of authors that I normally wouldn't get to converse with and to find sort of this middle ground with um, with our books. Like I did a, a panel last year, at Boston, or two years ago at Boston Teen Author Festival that was all, all of us wrote retellings in some way or another, and it was so interesting that these books that 
seemingly like when they sent me the lineup, I was like, we will have nothing to talk about. And it ended up being one of my like favorite panels ever because we ended up having a lot of like space to space to cross over, but we also had a lot of um, very different opinions on things because we had approached our retellings from from very different angles. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just try. I don't know. I I talk to kids, talk to young people. I'm sort of enthusiastic and kind of nerdy, and I just sort of let that let that be out there. I had a like an eighth grade class I think I spoke to that wrote me adorable letters afterwards that were so delightful and one of the kids said, you seem like kind of a nerd and I like that. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> oh, observant so, of you. Yeah, that's the next blurb for my, for my book. Yeah, she seems like kind, kind of, of a nerd. nerd. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that at all. What is um? What is your next book? I actually I, 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 I no I did I, I I looked into it but I would rather have you describe it. Okay, it's okay. It. Yeah. I understand. Um, there's some suspension of disbelief, but I'm just saying because that... you don't believe me. The Gentleman's Guide. To, no, I totally, I, I totally I don't believe you. I totally believe you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Where I tried to read the name of somebody's book and I didn't have my reading glasses. <laughs> it's like I'm getting old. No, I believe you. Yeah. Um, the second book is called The Gentleman's Guide to yeah. Vice and Virtue, and so that's coming out in um, June with Catherine Teigen. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, yeah. Should I tell you about it? Like, yes. Do you want to? You don't I would to. love to talk about this yeah. book. This no, is like the book that I'm like living and breathing right now. Yeah. It's weird when you write things that um, you, I forget like Monster Thing is something I wrote, it feels like so long ago. Um, because you believe time so long, right? Yeah. But, and yeah. then it's weird. Like when I was, um, when I was promoting that book, I was working on what I thought was going to be my second book and ended up getting kind of um, trashed. Um, but um, but at the time I was like I don't remember this book I wrote and I, I did a reading from it a couple I did a reading from Monster Thing a couple like months ago and I was like I don't remember this book at all it's like, it's like, I, stop, else, like I know you stop right? you yeah. get to the end of the reading I'm like wait what happens next like I gotta keep going <laughs> um, so yeah Gentleman's Guide is much fresher on my brain right now um, so it is a uh, sort of uh, I don't know a, a genre entry in the adventure novel um, Monstrous Thing is very much like a self-aware gothic novel and I really like taking these sort of tropes of my favorite genres and then twisting them up a little bit um, so um, Gentleman's Guide is an adventure novel set in the 18th century about two best friends who are going on their grand tour of Europe together which is a phenomenon I first learned about in college which is when you were like a young rich white guy in the 1700s and you had that awkward period of time between finishing school and waiting for your dad to die to so die. you could like take over the estate <laughs> yep. you would basically just travel the travel the continent for several years and right. these these young men just had these incredibly opulent tours where you would it was like so the, the purpose was twofold that part of it was to see art and culture and buy fancy things that are going to go in your house and go to the opera and things like that and then the other part of it was to kind of sow your wild oats and get all your drinking and partying out of your system so that then you can come back and be a functioning member of society. Gotcha. Um, so the book takes place on a tour um, with these two young men and uh, things go off track as they often do in adventure novels and then shenanigans ensue. Okay. <laughs> That's what happens the, Yeah, this there's is an official like a, jacket copy, shenanigans. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no adventure novel without shenanigans. It has to be Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, cool. And how, how so? How long did it take you to write that book? Did you, did you find it to be a longer or a shorter process than? Like? I actually wrote that one really fast. It, um, like I said, I was working on something else for. Sorry, I had a two book contract for Monstrous Thing. Um, was working on something else for my second book, and it was not working. And my publisher and I sort of had different ideas about how to make it work. And at the same time, because this, it's like I think the second book curse is a real thing, where it's so arduous and so difficult to write the second book. It feels so backwards when you're doing it. Once you have a first book out, because before it's like you write what you love and then throw it out there and see if it sticks. And now it's you have an agent, you have an editor, you have a marketing plan, you have fans. Like you have so many voices in your head 
from the start, and I was having such a hard time with it, and just felt like it was like it was like pulling teeth to write this second book. And so I ended up starting to write this like adventure novel idea that I'd had in my head. I love like swashbuckly adventure things, and I was writing it for fun. I was writing it for me. I was writing it with the intention of like literally never showing it to anyone. Um, and then when we sort of had this. Um, divergence with uh, Catherine Teagan, no pun intended with Divergence, um, I had a moment where I was like, okay, well, like, I have to write something else, and I have this that I'm half done with, that I've just sort of been picking out for a while, and so I showed it to them, they responded positively to it, and then I sort of wrote it in this frantic burst of about a month, um, and I, I generally draft really, really quickly, but this was um, a quicker process than usual. Were you under a deadline for that? Is it that... wasn't so much a deadline. Yeah. I think it was mostly I just wanted to prove after this like terrible, terrible process of trying to write the first the first try at book two, I like felt like I needed to prove to myself that I could still do this. And also, it was a very joyful process because I had this book in my head and had thought it thought about it and shaped it a lot before. I had felt like it was going to be read by anyone. So as a result, like when I first started writing it, I was very much of the mindset. I was like, nothing is too ridiculous. Everything, every trope is going to be in here and every like weird thing you love. And this is why there's like a scene in the book that has speaking in Versailles. Like it was just like, there's nothing too ridiculous for right. this book. Right. Um, and so it was just, it was a really joyful process. Um, and it was so fun to write. It's the most fun thing I've ever written. And of course, like then you revise it and it's terrible and you hate it and you want to set it on fire. Um, but it was a fun book to write, um, and it was, I think, because I started it just for myself, it was a, it was a very easy book to write. Yeah, that makes such a big difference. I mean, writing, uh, it's, I'm at my happiest when I'm, when I'm actually writing and something's really clicking. Yeah. Um, and then I usually put the work down and I go inside my house, and then I'm miserable, because yeah. as soon as the glow wears off, I'm like, that was crap. Oh my gosh, yeah. I think? And this is, and, and when, that, it's, when it's good, it's yeah. so good, and that like high of yeah. when you're drafting, and it's like, it's just flowing out of you, and it feels so good, yeah. and then there's the other days where I'm like, six words, maybe, and they don't actually make sense together, yeah. or when you, you're, at the end of the day, your word count is less than it was at the start of the day, and I'm like, what kind of sorcery made this happen? Yeah, that's funny, yeah. Well, you did some editing, I guess. You did some, you did some, some trimming. Um, I don't even look at word count, because I'm not, like, I have I to, try not to, too. Yeah, I know I some people are very, like, 1,500 words a day, and I yeah. just try and let it happen. Yeah, I'm the same way, because some days I might get 200, some days, and then, but I'm, like, one of those, like, like weird chemists, and or sometimes I'll get out there, and it'll be, like, 3,000 words Day. But, then, yeah. but then other days will be zero. Mm -hmm. um, no, I do that too. I'm very much yeah. not a, I'm not a write every day person. Yeah. And I sometimes see all these people like who are my friends or people on Twitter who are other YA authors and they're like, hit my word count today, hit my word count today. And I'm like, I haven't written in three weeks and get very sort of down on myself. And I'm trying to be better about trusting my own process as opposed to feeling like there's a right way to do this. Yeah. Um, because I did, I got hung up when I was, before I did my MFA, when I was just sort of writing on my own, I got very hung up on all this writing advice. And I think you're you're sort of um, predisposed to want to seek it out. When you want to be good and you want to be better and you want to be good at this thing you love doing, you want to read everything and you want to ask everybody for help and take everybody's advice without realizing that not all advice is created equally. Mm -hmm. So I took a lot of bad advice when I was first starting to write and part of it is like the, the don't, don't use adverbs and don't use dialogue tags and write every day and all these sort of things that didn't work for me. And then I was like, Why? maybe I'm not meant to do this because these aren't working for me. And in the end, you just have to, you have to trust your process and trust what works for you and trust that everyone is, everyone is a different writer. 
Yeah. And it gets easier, right? I mean, it does, yeah. That's one of the things I, you know, I get a lot of questions about writer's block. People are like, oh, do you ever get writer's block? Or what happens when stuff's not... And I'm like, well, of course I get writer's block. Mm-hmm. Every, I, everybody does. They don't... I don't necessarily think of it as writer's block. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just trust the fact that I'll come out of it. You yeah. Know, I, I've... You know, I feel like I've written enough now that I know, like, yeah, I'm going to have these days where it's rough, and yeah. I feel like nothing's ever going to happen. But I know that I'll get through it because I have before. And it's yeah. like anything else. It's like any other. That's exactly what it is. Occupation or craft or something. You, know, um, you go there and you roll up your sleeves, and you know what will happen. Yeah, I think of it less as writer's block and more. Um, I had a, a, a grad school mentor describe it as like, like when you think of fruit trees or flowering trees, they don't produce fruit for the entire for the entire year. They have this sort of period of of creation and production. And so you have to think of it like that, that you have periods in your life where you're, you are a flowering tree and where you are a fruit tree bearing fruit. This is a strange metaphor. Um, but then you have to have that sort of period of germination throughout the year where you are dormant and where you are resting and thinking and sort of recharging. And so I go through long periods of time where I don't write anything and where I'm not working on anything. And I, it's really hard not to feel like you suck and feel like you're broken and can I ever repeat this impossible thing again. But, but, in, but in, is it... In the reality, aren't you really working on something because those ideas are germinating? Even, sure. Even though you're not putting... For in, sure, but it doesn't know. feel like it when you're not, when you don't have a, a right. manuscript on your computer that you're looking at. Right. Um, yeah. That ramp-up time is so important, though. Like, it because, is, because yeah. If, I mean, like, you know, I know books have sat with me, like the ideas for a book will start and then I won't start writing words for maybe a year. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has to, I sit with ideas for, for years at a time. Yeah. Um, and not even, like is in like actively plotting them you just sort of sit with them in the back of your head and they just become magnetic and attract little things that you that you learn about or see in your life um i generally keep like documents that are just sort of like thought vomit documents for for certain ideas i just sort of pour all this stuff into it so that i can just have one list of like look at all these things that someday might factor into this book right um, that's what's, that's why one reason i like talking to other authors is because that concept that, that you just described is so like abstract, probably yeah. and esoteric for somebody who doesn't write or somebody who, who that just doesn't who doesn't think that way. Um, but yeah, it's such a big part of the process. People think that like, well, where do ideas come from? Everywhere. I, yeah, everywhere, nowhere. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's the black magic of it, right? Yeah. It's sort of like that's it, it, it comes from strange places. Right? Yeah, I'm also very much not the kind of writer who um, has that one moment of like hit in the face with an idea so you get that question a lot in interviews like where did you get the idea for this book and the answer is like well when I was 12 years old this happened and when I was 15 this happened and then I saw this thing when I was in high school and then as an adult and then suddenly one day I was just sort of writing it and there's never like a one moment I look back especially on um, Gentleman's Guide and I have no answer for where I got the idea for this book. The, the, this monstrous thing has more of a, an origin story where I'm like, I saw this play and I became really interested in Frankenstein and that led to, and also like steampunk at the same time. Um, and they all just sort of fused in my head. Where Gentleman's Guide, it's more like I was in Europe for a while and then I learned about this thing. And then in the last few years, I've been thinking a lot about, um, as a, like a history major and then moving beyond my history major into my MFA, I've been thinking a lot about um, excluded voices from history and sexuality and gender and things like that and how we, we don't talk about that in historical context very often and then suddenly you're writing a book about all this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what's, what's, again, what I find interesting is you know, people ask where an idea came from and it's like, I can't tell you where the, the big idea, like sort of the overall idea came from, but if you yeah. ask me a little detail, I can sure. probably come back and say, oh yeah, this came from here oh, for and sure. that came from there, and this, and, but that's sort of how it paints the whole tapestry of how it, how yeah. it comes together. Um, so do you have a mechanical arm? I do have a mechanical arm. <laughs> I was Funny you should I... mention that. As soon as you said events and then we moved on, I was like, oh, I should have mentioned the mechanical arm. Yeah. 
Um, yes, I do have mechanical arms. So um, this monster's thing is steampunk Frankenstein, basically. So the, the creature in the book and is made from um, steampunk parts and gears and clockwork and things like that. Um, so when I, I have a good friend from high school who's a filmmaker, and um, he and I were talking about doing a book trailer and filming a book trailer for this um, for this uh, book, and we had some cool ideas, and I was like, we should do the sort of like the creation or the resurrection scene, but that would the character has a mechanical arm, so I was like, we would need this critical prop. Yeah. So my, my father is an engineer, and I sort of jokingly sent him a YouTube tutorial on how to make a mechanical arm. <laughs> I was like, hey, if you have a spare minute and feel like this is something you want to try, yeah. voila. Um, and then a very oddly shaped package showed up under our tree that year for Christmas, and it was a mechanical arm, nice. which we used in the trailer and which looks fantastic in the trailer, and then I have ended up taking to school visits in bookstores with me and um, just having it like sit menacingly in front of the signing table. <laughs> So is it like can you actually does it actually can you control it like or it, does it just sort of is it sort of like a, like a it's it's a it's a dead arm at this point. Right. The first impetus was that you can kind of pull these like I'm demonstrating on my arm and you can't see on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but there were like uh, these like copper wires that would go and you could pull them from the fingers and you could pull the copper wires and the fingers would move. Um, and then it just sort of got uh, less and less functional. The elastic in it um, kind of died a little bit. So now it's just it's just very pretty. Yeah. Um, it now it mostly um, sits on my floor and I step on it when I'm going for the light switch and curse at it. But so um, how the mighty it was, it was probably so like you know um, when you first got it, it was probably you were, it was probably had a very prominent place somewhere and you were so excited about. Oh it. my gosh! And now the poor little thing's been stepped <laughs> on and it's like you know it's had a rough life. Yeah, yeah. Well, so my my father who poured so much of his like love and time yeah. into this and my mom was telling me after she was like he labored over this right. Um, we were, I think I was doing a library event in my, my hometown, and I had the mechanical arm, and my dad hadn't seen it in a while, and they were having a joyful reunion, and um, he, like, held up his hand to high-five it, and so I high-fived him with the mechanical arm, and the pinky broke off, and my father made this noise as if it were his pinky that had broken off, just, like, pain and a horror, um, to the point that I was concerned something had happened, but no, it was just the, it was just the mechanical just arm that had been wounded, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it, sounds, it sounds really cool. It's a really cool sort of... It is cool. It's a, yeah. fun, it's a fun prop. It's fun to have at signings. People are generally, like, fascinated but intimidated by it. Like, they don't actually want to touch it. I'll, like, have it on the table. and like, you can pick it up. Like, you can take pictures with it. And they're sort of like, that's okay. And they just poke it. Um, but I like it. It's been a fun... Um, yeah, that's just, like, awesome. a fun little visual memory of the book, too. Yeah. And if nothing else, it's a, a good way to... Um, to vet people when they come into my home that if they see it and they're like that's so cool that's great and if they see it and they're like oh that like, creepy probably, thing? Yeah. probably we should not be friends <laughs> um, talking about writing I guess maybe on a, on a different kind of scale one of the things that um, uh, on your Twitter account um, it's it's uh, I, I can read this one. Bygone, bad, <laughs> bygone badass broads. Yeah, which I thought was really cool. I started. I started reading, and I was sort of like hooked. I read. The, I think I read the whole last uh, series of one. That oh, wow, thank yeah. you. So, what was the what was the genesis for that? Like, what, I mean, it's, it was a really cool. Like, I mean, there's so much, frankly, garbage on social media. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's really nice to actually. Like, I can't remember the last time I actually learned anything on Twitter. Um, and I found it just really interesting. Good, so, makes me so happy. Yeah, so where did, so where did that come from and what like, so inspired Again, you? a lot of places, just like my novels. Um, yeah. It did come from being on social media and feeling like I wasn't interacting in a healthy way with social media. Mm-hmm. And I was on the on the internet and feeling, do you need to adjust your podcast? No, no, it's gone. So, it's <laughs> okay. So, like your mechanical arm, sometimes it has a mind of its own. Excellent, and okay. It's, it's, I'm sorry. So. I'll just, no, I'll just let it alone. I just yeah, wanted yeah. to make sure I wasn't, um, I wasn't talking nonsense for no reason. No, I keep on. Um, so yeah, so I was not 
interacting well with social media, I felt very negative and like I wasn't putting things out there that I felt like were necessarily the best things I wanted to be. But I'm like I'm a historian, and I um, in my undergrad I was generally didn't do well as a history major and didn't end up being a professor because I was sort of very passionate but low on facts sometimes. That I will tell these stories and I'll tell people I'll be like, okay, so I have this great historical story. I can't remember exactly when it was. And it was either a man or a woman or something. I don't remember. But I always under, I'd always remember, like, the most interesting part. I just sort of, like, all the other details um, blur. But I have a lot of sort of, like, pent-up enthusiasm for the things in history. So every once in a while, I would tweet as, like, here is a woman from history that I don't feel like enough people should know about, but or enough people know about, and I feel like they should. And then sort of felt like that was, like, I expected to get, like, mass unfollowed every time I did that, and instead people responded really positively to it, and I sort of realized, like, this is a way I can be on social media and feel like I'm putting something positive into it, and both for both for me and for the people who are reading my Twitter feed. Um, and also, like, I talked about this a little bit, I have become very aware in the last couple of years of sort of who has been erased from history, um, and the idea of like women's narratives in history and how we we don't give them the same sort of um, the same sort of, not even just the same sort of attention but we don't we don't read them in the same way we, we read male narratives um, and we erase we erase queer stories we erase gender non-conforming people we erase um, lots of like women and men of color um, and I was I was researching Gentleman's Guide like Gentleman's Guide is largely about um, like sexuality and also um, has some like stuff about race relations in the 18th century England and I read all this fascinating stuff about um, black people in England in the 18th century, which I had, like, didn't occur to me that that was a thing. And there was, like, large subcultures in, um, in, in London and in, in terms of queer culture. Like, London had more, like, gay bars in the 1700s than it did in the 1940s, which was insane to me. And I was like, why don't we, why don't we know about this and why don't we talk about it? And I was getting, this is a long answer, I was getting tired of seeing, of reading these stories in history and then when I would read historical fiction, see women and minorities excluded because of quote-unquote historical accuracy. Um, and so this project was sort of my way of like, let me try and like counter this historical, ac- this myth of historical accuracy and also try and like put more positive stuff out on social media. Um, and it's become like, it's a project that kind of started on a whim and I was like, I will do this a couple of times and see if anyone responds to it and it's become like such a great, great thing for me this past year. I've had so much fun doing it. I've met so many like great people on the internet. Um, it's just, it's such a joy. Yeah, oh, so. it's, really, it's really terrific. Like I say, it's, thank it's, you. It's, it's so nice to see somebody uh, doing something positive and good with social media. I mean, obviously, you're not the only one. But <laughs> no, but, I'm the yeah, sole. I am no. the sole person on Twitter. Yeah, doing no, it's, good it's, it's, it's all it's all Mackenzie. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but you're it, welcome. Yeah, Wells. yeah, exactly. It's hashtag, hashtag bygone badass broads. Mm-hmm. Um, very cool. Thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that was uh, again really interesting stuff. Thanks. It's been it's been great to to talk about a lot of women that I I knew about just from from reading things and feel like more people should know about, and then also to expand my horizons. Mm-hmm. And when I started the series, I definitely realized I didn't know about as many like women of color in history, and I didn't know about as many queer women, and so I was purposely I purposely seek out those kind of stories too in hopes that we can all like diversify our history too, and not just in terms of like telling more women's stories, but also like not just white straight women. Right, so. right, yeah. So, um, 
not to not to relive your past podcast experience you were telling okay. about, where you uh, you said you talk all about your next book coming out, oh, and, yeah. it, and it turned out it didn't come out. Um, are you work? I mean, are you working on anything else that you can talk about? Yes, right now? I do have something like with an actual contract, so okay. I feel like this is this is much safer this time. Okay. Um, so I have a so gentleman's guide coming out in June, and then I have another book coming out in 2018, um, which has a title, but I don't know if that title will change is the thing. Um, so the title right now is called it's called Semper Augustus. Um, it is coming out with Flatiron Books, which is a Macmillan imprint, and it is set during the... Can I interrupt? Yes. Your, who's your editor at Flatiron? Sarah Barley. Sarah was my, was, uh, my editor for oh, really? a period of time. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. Sarah's great. She's been on the podcast before. Has she? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, yeah, Sarah and I have worked together for a while as bookseller and um, editor. When she was starting Flatiron, she reached out to Porter and was like, hey, can I send you galleys? And yep. I ended up reading them and just falling in love with everything she's ever edited like all these books that I remember her sending me like American Girls which is one of the books she worked on that I was like this doesn't sound like a thing for me and then I was like reading it like I can't put this down it's so riveting and interesting and obviously like the the author gets a lot of credit for that too but um, everything Sarah's worked on I loved and when she offered on this book I was like telling my agent I was like we have to accept this fast because she's going to change her mind and realize I'm not cool enough for her and (laughs) it's just like it's a a crazy dream to be working with Sarah on this yeah Um, but yeah so the book is called Semper Augustus it is historical fiction, predictably. Um, it is set in 1637 in Holland and is about the Dutch tulip mania, which is this very strange um, little pocket of history where um, so the Dutch have just become independent from Spain. They have really great trade going all over the world. Um, and as a result, there's sort of this like emerging middle class and a lot of sort of excess wealth in Holland that people just don't know what to do with because they've never really, like especially the middle class, like doesn't know how to be wealthy. And like the side note of this is this is why we have a lot of like paintings from that time, like the Dutch Golden Age painting is because people are like, why not buy paintings? Right. Um, so in the 1630s, people started uh, buying up tulip bulbs. Tulips were this like, they're first of all not native to Holland, which I thought was very interesting. They were a fairly new flower to Holland at the time. Um, and they are sort of useless flowers in terms of like they don't have any sort of medicinal or useful properties. They're just pretty. Yep. Um, so it was sort of this like, it was a status symbol to be able to own right. tulips. And so because people were buying tulip bulbs, this economic bubble um, sprung up around tulip bulbs to the point that when this like mania hit, hit its, its peak in 1637, uh, people were trading single tulip bulbs for like the price of a house in Amsterdam. Um, and then overnight it just collapsed that it was really, like, you read the accounts of it, and it's nothing super well recorded from back then, um, but you read, like, and it was really just, there was, like, an auction, and they were calling the tulip price, these crazy high tulip prices, and people just kind of, like, looked at each other and were like, what what are we doing? Like, <laughs> and then it was over. Um, and I, I learned about this and was incredibly fascinated by it um, and really wanted to write my My family's Dutch. Um, my last name is Notley. It is a very um, long Dutch masterpiece. And that would be very intimidating to put on the cover of a book. Um, and so I've always sort of, like, I've been, I felt very connected to that culture for a long time and then um, found out about this, um, this tulip mania and thought it was so interesting and wanted to write about it. So um, the book is a, a story about two siblings who are living during the, the height of the tulip mania and get sort of wrapped up in a con to sell a worthless bulb for way more than it's worth. Cool, cool idea. Thank you. I'm yeah. very excited about it. Yeah, and that's awesome that you're working with Sarah. Like I said, I'm a big, I'm a big fan. When we're done, Definitely I'm, I'm going to email her and be like, guess who I interviewed on the oh. podcast, Sarah? <laughs> you got to listen now. Oh, uh, 
Yeah, no, but she, she's uh, she's very cool, and um, you're definitely in great hands. I mean, it sounds like you knew it before, so. Yeah. yeah, it still, like, just feels like a dream, but when we were, when I was first talking to my agent about who I wanted to set this book to, I was like, well, it should just go to Sarah, just because I, like, I don't know if she'd like this, but I don't know if I'm cool enough for her. I just really like her, and I wanted to. She was described to me um, by another editor who's been in the business forever as a as sort of like a rock star star on the rise like a few years ago mm-hmm. and then I think when I had her on the podcast I said I can't say you're a star on the rise anymore you're just like a total star she's, you she gets all embarrassed straight up a star yeah she gets all like embarrassed and whatever but, yeah she's amazing yeah that's she's, great that's, she's, yeah she's super cool um, and this has been this has been great and we've had like a soundtrack going on I know I, I, yeah, like, a I couple of times <laughs> there's like, <laughs> like really <laughs> heavy saxophones going there yeah but. so it's like so it's like if they get they won't be bored with you because the listeners won't bored of you because you're terrific but if they're bored with me at least there's some music in the background get some like what's new pussycat yeah exactly there for a minute. I think we got like Tom Jones we got Pink was just on earlier it's like it's a diverse soundtrack yeah totally and uh, so I might just leave that in there and not worry about right. copyright concerns or anything like that because okay, yeah what can we do it is what it is you're, you're a non-profit so. yeah, yeah 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 no one's going to come looking for me um your website is Mackenzie Lee? MackenzieLee.com. I'm on Twitter at the Mackenzie Lee and also Instagram at the Mackenzie Lee. If you want to follow Bygone Badass Broads, um, you can hashtag that. Search the hashtag. It, I do it live every um, Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, you do not have to tune in live to read it because they live on my Twitter forever. Lives on the internet forever. And also they are all storyfied. Storyfied? Is that the word? Storyified? I don't know. They're all archived, so the archives live Excellent. on the internet. Great stuff. And uh, stop by Trident Bookstore and say, well, I don't know, but if you, you actually don't probably, do you work before at Trident? Every once in a while, Every yeah. Every once in a while, yeah. Come to our events. Come yeah. see me at events. Yeah, there you go. Mackenzie, thanks. You were awesome. Oh, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Super fun. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, Telling Lies to Children was brought to you by, well, nobody. Just me and my guests. One of the nice things about being completely unknown in the vast world of podcasting is that you don't have to listen to me read 10 minutes worth of ads at the beginning and end of every episode. But I hope you'll check out my website, pauldurhambooks.com. There you can find out more about the Luck Ugly series, you can book a school visit, you can shop the newly opened Dead Fish Inn gift shop, or just reach out and say hello. I'd love to hear from you. You can also find links to all of my guests' websites and social media there. So until next time, I wish you happy reading, ugly luck, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. that woke you up. See you next time.